3: Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. Hi, Spanners here. It's a rest weekend in Formula One, an increasingly rare one, but the fast race cars are winging their way over to Australia as we speak. So we have a chance to stop and assess how 2022 has changed the on-track action. We'll look at the changes at Albert Park. That's what the racetrack is called in Australia. And we'll look at the DRS dilemma facing the Formula One rulemakers. We'll also ask... When do you own The Corner? I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed, with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Here's your panel. I'm joined by Matt
2: to Rumpets. Totally not trying to model porpoising at home out of handy materials for um, reasons. Nerd. Here's another
3: nerd. It's Kyle Power.
2: Looking forward to arguing about DRS.
3: You're wrong, Kyle. And we have <laughs> race driver Brad Philpott.
4: Somebody needs to tell Mercedes about non-Newtonian fluid dampers. Oh, April fools. I hate it so much.
3: Yes, Brad Philpot there has reminded me that April 1st was just an absolute nightmare for news, uh, but one of the one of the most genuinely funny and could potentially fool people ones was Craig Scarborough's Scarbs Scarborough F1's uh, breakdown of porpoising, Brad. What was it? He said they'd found a solution. Oh no, no, Red Bull had found a solution.
4: I I still think that's a really good solution that they should try and explore. Um yeah, he was saying that Red Bull had a a non-Newtonian fluid damper which basically firms up uh, the fluid inside with movement and that was stopping the porpoising. To me, that sounds like something which they definitely should look at.
3: Yeah, it was was brilliant. It was very good. But I think tonight I really wanted to focus in on the driving elements of Formula 1 and how they've changed in 2022. So I think a good one to start with will be Kyle because I know me and him can have an argument. What is your beef with uh, VRS? You are a grumpy VRS, DRS. You're a grumpy old man, Kyle. That's the problem. You're just one of these, oh, in the olden days, we never had central heating and we, they there was cracks in the road, but people could live in them. You've become a grumpy curmudgeon. Uh, and what's your beef with DRS? Absolutely. I mean, back in my day, we had to die three times before we could get to watch
5: the, um, At least. To watch the Grand Prix. Uh, yeah. Well, I've got a bit of beef with DRS now because the new regulations have proved, well, seemingly proved so successful in the cars being able to follow that now I think DRS is way, way too powerful. So hence, we saw the DRS games with Leclerc and um, Verstappen down into the last corner, double DRS zones. And also the zones just seem too long. So DRS, when it was put in, was always intended not to affect a pass. It was intended to put you into a position to be able to pass, not to actually give you the pass. But now it's almost a guaranteed pass. If you're within 0.5 of a second behind a car going into a DRS zone, it's a guaranteed pass. So I don't think that's a healthy thing. And I think we need to trim it back a bit.
3: All right, you know We have to remember why DRS came in in the first place. It came in in a formula. In fact, when did it come in? Do we remember the year? 2011. 2011, so relatively recently, so it's been around for 10 years, and it was introduced in a formula maybe where overtaking was a bit more of a struggle. But if you look at, I don't know, the last four or five years, I know people have complained about lack of overtaking and there's an improvement this year, but really the last four or five years, there was a lot of arguments already to start making changes to DRS and some tracks going, well, let's just not have it at this track. Uh,
5: Yeah, and in DRS, and in 2011, we kind of had a double whammy because I believe that was the first year with the Pirelli tires and with them, you know, and their high degradation and thermal degradation issues. Um, we started to get great and mixed up races anyway. And when the tires went a little bit more conservative, that that came out. So I think I still think it's a necessary evil, but I just think it's too overpowered now. We've got used to it. So you, you say we've had great racing over the last couple of years. and Indeed, we have but a vast majority of all the passes we've seen have been what we call DRS passes when they just black passed on the straight. They haven't been desperate lunges into braking zones. And I think we're at the stage now with the regulation seeming to work that we can reduce the power of it and put it more back into having to have a late lunge on the brakes.
2: Right. So I would answer that with um, saying baby bathwater... The Saudi Arabia track in particular, Jada, is unusual in that it has three DRS zones in a row. I don't believe that's the case at most tracks. So I want want to see a few more races. I like the idea, like they did with DRS in the beginning, of maybe tuning it over the weekend, making it longer or shorter as they observe on-track action, and and especially with the other classes getting the racing done sooner. Yeah, and as we...
5: As you mentioned, they used to tweak with it quite a lot, used to hear it quite a lot yeah. the, during the, um, yeah, going into Saturday morning, oh, they've changed the DRS zone length um, in here, and they don't seem to do that now. So the DRS, they seem to have left from the old era of cars. It seems so weird calling 2021 the old era, but it's but it's true. So it's set up and tuned for them. And you know, again, in Bahrain, it was a bit too powerful on the main straight. And the big thing is we've had two tracks successively that have had consecutive deep, DRS zones and I don't think that's a good thing so this causes this shenanigans with coming up on the first DRS is really powerful puts you in a position to pass but you don't want to pass because you know there's another DRS zone immediately afterwards what's going to be really interesting if we get when we get to a track like Canada when they have the DRS zone all the way down the back straight into the flip-flop chicane then they have another one into turn one whether we start seeing those shenanigans into turn one because they'll be able to follow each other better through the chicanes
3: yeah I think I, I see all that, Carl, but the problem that we might face here is that F1 2022 has delivered these two already iconic battles, and it's it's hard now to to go back. And are you going to tell me that you could walk into that FIA board meeting about what they're going to do about DRS? In fact, we'll, we'll go to Matt on that. What we're going to do about DRS and tell them, I, I want to make some changes for the good of the sport and for what I believe the racing should be, now, it will mean that we won't have any of those swappy backwards and forwards. You're going to get chucked out of a window. Make sure you don't have that meeting on the 50th floor would be my suggestion.
2: Well, I agree. I, I think what you're looking at here is it's not going to be perfect whatever you do. So the question is, if I'm going to make a mistake, do I make a mistake where there is more overtaking and more back and forth battling or less? And right now, after after the years in the wilderness we've had, I'm saying if they're going to make a mistake, okay, well, let's have a little too much DRS because look at how much fun it is to watch. Yeah, what's the harm, Kyle? What is the harm in having
3: the battles like we've had the last two races? Does it really matter? I mean, the the faster car and the better driver is still going to have an advantage and win out. Isn't it just more interesting?
5: It is, and I don't want to be the guy who who says let's ruin ruin a good thing. So I think Matt had a good point of we may well gorge on it this year and just have overtaking overload. But my my issue is I don't want overtaking to become cheap. It's the same reason why I don't think 30 Grand Prix a year is a good thing. Too much of a thing it can oversaturate it. So we want to make, you know, before, you know, back in the noughties, back in the nineties, overtakes were really, they were few and far between, but they were special when they happened. I think we're kind of losing that special bit of the overtake when it's just a DRS overtake. So I think we can just trim it back a bit. And I'll, I'd rather have less overtaking of a higher quality than more loads of DRS overtakes, if that makes sense.
2: It does make sense. Um, I do want to say that um, Tim in the chat room has brought up an interesting point. He says, Doesn't DRS help with porpoising, therefore having a double effect? And that actually might be a reason why. They're not messing with it yet.
3: Oh, because when you open DRS, you get less porpoising, so it's helping them out? No, that can't be. That can't. I cannot believe that they would make a racing decision like that based on, on a, a condition that only happens when you're following another car. That doesn't make sense to me.
5: Yeah, well, I think what that means is when it allows teams to run a bit closer, because when you open the DRS flap, it takes the aero load off and reduces the porpoising. So I think the FAA would be happy to leave it at the moment because if they take it away completely, the cars will be bouncing around and wouldn't get anywhere near each other. So it's actually alleviating the problem. But what they said in the chat room um, was maybe highlighting that that it's making the DRS exaggerated it's a giving it's making it way more powerful than it should be if the cars weren't porpoising because the car in front is porpoising the car behind opens its DRS loses its aero load and stops porpoising and gets an extra boost because of it
3: okay so because i'm slightly bored of porpoising just as a topic in general i'm going to focus on the racing element of it and uh, and go to you uh, Brad is this an unsatisfying form of racing where every pass is effectively a drs pass and lining yourself up for drs is more important than some of the things that you will have gone through in karting and single seaters and 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 sports cars of like you know sitting in the blind spot dummying someone like are we losing some of the actual art of racing
4: yes in a way um but i think it's it's very tricky because formula one is a an extreme form of motorsport and by by that i mean you've got very very powerful aero which is here to stay. We're, we're going to have wings and yeah. aero that helps the cars go fast around the corners, which naturally makes it very hard to follow. So it is different to other motorsports. So we can't really judge it in the same way as you judge touring cars or, or something that's you know much less aero-dependent. So I kind of feel like, although I don't like DRS either as a concept, it feels um, impure. It does, it's not proper overtakes. Yeah. I kind of feel like, We're in this position where we do need something like this in order to make the racing viable at all, because even with the improved ability to follow this year, I still think overtaking would be a little bit too difficult without something like DRS. Uh, There are other ways to do this. You can have a system a little bit like IndyCar, where you have uh, a finite amount of push to pass to use during a race, a certain number of seconds. And you can use that strategically. You can use it all at once. You can use it to make overtakes. You can use it to do fast laps in clear air. But ultimately, everyone's got the same amount. And if you've run out when you need to make an overtake, that's kind of on you. So I think maybe I'd prefer that than, I don't know, for some reason that feels a little bit less artificial than opening a flap and just driving past on a straight. But I'm not 100% sure why.
5: Yeah, and I get what Brad's saying. And I agree. I think it's a necessary evil. Even still at the moment, I wouldn't want to get rid of it entirely, but I think it needs to be massively reduced in power. And as Danny Henney points out in the live chat, the DRS is brought in to get the cars alongside into braking zones, not past the car in front with 300 meters still to go to the braking zone. And that's yeah. kind of my my point. I think it's a little bit overpowered. So I actually think at the moment I could stick my neck out and say they could probably halve a lot of the DRS <laughs> zones. And we would probably be seeing some more sort of dramatic breaking zones at the end of the straights as a result.
3: Yeah, and and I think, but I think i people aren't aren't going to in the decision making realm when they hear the marketing people and they go out and do focus groups because I'm imagining that now in Formula One. They do what they do with movies and TV shows. Um, this is a complete guess. But I'm guessing they get a bunch of people in the room that have just watched the race and they do these focus groups, you know, test groups. What did you think of the thing? And they're going to say, well, we loved the bit with the where the cars were swapping places. That was incredible. And that is going to take precedent over grumpy Kyle, who's been watching F1 since 19-dickety-six, Matt.
2: Yeah, and I'm going to be very generous and say that Kyle is not entirely wrong.
3: No, no, no. I agree with Carl. I'm just, my, my thing is reality of what's going to happen.
2: But I think we also have to accept we've seen a lot of battles that were more than just, oh, by and into turn one and gone. We saw uh, multiple times, multiple cars, and uh, I'm thinking of Alonso and Ocon in particular, not just fighting through turns two, three, and four before one or the other gets an advantage, but then doing it all over again the next lap around. And to me, I think the DRS is helping with that a little bit right now. So uh, just just be careful what you wish for. That's all I'm saying.
3: I know. Uh, Brad, with your push-to-pass idea with the extra power, I wonder if it might solve a, a suggestion that keeps getting poo-pooed for DRS when I make it, which is that when you're alongside, the DRS flap would like close. And people always say, oh, well, that's too dangerous to suddenly introduce a, a braking force of aero. But to me, the point would be, it's something to get you alongside. With your push-to-pass what's it could that not be disabled once you get side by side so it can't give you any extra advantage
4: yeah i actually really like that as a concept um i, I take issue with the drs closing that's what everyone when says alongside no I, I take issue with that being dangerous because yeah oh okay if you're still accelerating then you're not decelerating you're accelerating at less of a rate but unless there's someone else behind you also with drs open all uh, and they're not paying attention that's the only situation that could be an issue so i think that's a good idea spanners i think if there was a way to you know you could just have a sensor at some point on the car and it was in like you know where the driver was or something like that and then when they meet up it stops i think that's quite a good idea
3: i think we get poo-pooed for a lot of these suggestions because people say it's too complicated i I just want to quickly just point out from like a technology point of view Sensing where cars are on track, things for like track limits or in adjacent to another car, those things aren't technologically difficult. They can be implemented because just heading off a couple of emails, Matt.
2: No, no, and I would just if if we're going to be fixing Formula One, I would like to throw in um, the suggestion that Brad said with push to pass, why not give each driver I don't know five minutes of DRS and a whole race and they can use it whenever they want. They don't have to be close to people. They can be in front and use it and defending if they like, but
4: just give them a limited time of DRS and use it when they want. And then it becomes part of the strategy. So the reason that I prefer this, and I don't like the name push to pass because that makes it sound like you could just push a button and you overtake. It's not like that. It's just a slight power increase for the duration that you're pressing the button. But the thing I prefer about that to DRS is that DRS is dangerous in, if you're using it in the wrong place. So if the drivers could use DRS, say anywhere they wanted um, and well, they can just open it up in the middle of a corner. We've seen what happens when that goes wrong.
3: At Abbey, we saw Grosjean with the DRS flap open at Silverstone, didn't we? When that was part of a DRS zone.
4: Yeah, and also, yes, yeah. yeah, if, if it fails. I know they're, yeah. they're made in a way that they fail into the safer position, but the point being that you can use a push-to-pass button anywhere, and you know you can use that strategically in a different way. So I've just never been a particular fan. of The DRS system itself has always seemed a little bit, strange to me and yeah i'd rather we had a different system it was a
3: sticking plaster wasn't it
4: exactly
3: yeah
2: okay so i I apologize but yeah i meant only in the drs zones not anywhere on the track but your push to pass could be interesting if they were allowed to increase the fuel flow to get extra power for example like right now they have limited fuel flow maybe that would be a way to do it but i think we're veering off topic
3: no, uh, just a few live chat comments there. There's a suggestion about curs, which basically curs was that, wasn't it? You had a certain amount of battery power you could use, and then that, that swiftly got taken away. So bring back curs. hashtag bring back KERS. I don't know, or something like it. There's lots of stuff like like these ideas I'm sure are knocking about, but it's, it's fun to talk about them. Paddy says that F1 focus groups must have cataracts then, And talking about my focus groups that I was talking about, I would imagine those focus groups would not be just roomfuls of Kyles and Paddies. Those focus groups will have a a broad demographic of people from from brand new fans to older fans. And look at the markets that they're looking at. You know, a new US market, which is nothing nothing against American F1 fans at all, but it is broadly speaking a higher percentage of, of newer people who don't have the good old days that Kyle's harking back to to compare to, and they're just being asked, what were the best bits? What made you excited? What made you want to stay tuned in? Anyway, Kyle.
5: Yeah, I I don't mind DRS that much, because it's done in yeah a safe and controlled way. Um, I quite like the push-to-pass concept, but one thing for Formula One that I think that may stagnate into is it will kind of equal itself out so everyone will be using it at roughly the same times so there will be optimum times and optimum places to use it as a boost on track like out of corners it'll be much more effective under acceleration than it will at at Vmax, at velocity at the end of the straight so it will probably work out that everyone will be doing exactly the same thing and then we could just be waiting for laps until one runs out first before the other one does so i think it could neutralize itself
3: yeah people do have a habit of of taking those new Fresh things and then be able to hone down on it. Like the Pirelli tyres, for example. At first it was chaos, then everyone started to get their head around it, uh, you know, and they have to change it again to mix things up. Uh, a bit of hope for you, Kyle. Bahrain and the Jeddah track are perhaps the least representative for how DRS in modern F1 might work. Remember, we're going to Albert Park next, which is a track which frankly needs help uh, in fact we could just do before we go on to our next race control stuff we could look at the new changes at albert park but traditionally kyle that has been a track where you know we've got all excited about the f1 season and then street circuit yeah
5: it's ended up being a damp squib. i know a lot of people like that phrase um so yeah but but it's no longer so it no longer should be like that because this year they have made quite a lot of uh, sweeping track changes they have uh, widened it into turn one and made that a bit faster and wider. And then going into the traditional overtaking spot on Albert Park, which is turn three, yeah. that really tight bit, they've made that a lot wider as well. They've done away with the really awkward right hander, you know, where the camera shot looks at them and they, as they come towards you when Cobby actually had the massive crash a few years ago. Uh, they've completely made that a really fast corner now and got rid of the flip flop chicane afterwards. So it, it, it's a flat out straight, yeah, basically from like turn <laughs> the five or flip-flop. six. Flip All the way down to the super fast flip flops, like the amazing ones you want to go through, then into another wide corner and a braking zone. So they they have completely changed the dynamics of the track. And initially, when I looked at it, I was like, that's not a good idea because they're not going to be able to follow. But it's like they almost knew the new regulations were going to be successful because the new style of tracks that they're making and they've made Albert Park into one. Now I'm really, really excited about Albert Park. I think for the first time ever, I'm excited about the racing we will see wheel to wheel there because this new formula seems to deliver.
2: And don't forget, for the first time, and I think quite some time, we're going to have a gap in our tires. We're going for the two, the three, and the five, the softest of all tires. It's going to be an entirely resurfaced track, and you left off, they've widened the pit lane, and they might be increasing this the pit lane speed limit to 80 kilometers from 60 kilometers, which might bring different strategies into play. I know that's the plan. I don't think it's been confirmed yet if they're going to do it.
5: I think that's quite, that's quite major. So an extra 20 KPH in, in the pit lane, the, the, the penalty for pitting is going to be much less now. It's going to be a fair few seconds shorter, which then all the strategists looking at all of their graphs and their lines, all of a sudden an aggressive three stop or an aggressive two stop is going to become a much more attractive prospect to do now. And as you say, especially with the gap in the tires with the C5, the softest tires, they're essentially going to have a qualifying tire. So if some of them keep hold of that for the race, it might be worth it to run a super aggressive final stint on some brand new softs with a minimum pit pit lane time penalty. So it's going to be fascinating to see if they can get that in place because as we understand, it's not actually been given the go ahead yet. They need to just assess it when they get there. But they've moved the pit wall right up to the side of the circuit, so there's no grass at the side of the circuit now. Where Daniel Ricciardo oh, yeah. lost his front wing yeah. back in, I think it was uh, for his first race for Red Bull. So there's no grass now, where he he would have been in a wall back then. So, but if that gives us a faster pit lane, I think that's good.
3: Okay, so there's a, a few things there to break down. Let, let's firstly, I want to get to qualifying, but concentrating on the track. I lost track of like which chicane was flip-flop. Is that the one in the middle (laughs) before the famous kind of the the sort of sweeping straight that goes to the left? And then you've got kind of a more, uh, a a looser, bigger chicane left, right. Is the flip-flop the one before that? Correct. The the,
5: the, uh, palm tree lined, you know, the classic left with the yellow lines on the thing. And it gets to the super fast 11 and 12 chicane. Whereas now, well, previously that kind of would have really broken them up. But as we saw in Jeddah, it, it, it looks like it doesn't trouble the car behind too much. And it's more of a sort of a driver skill now. So coming down to the corner after that, they've winded that and made the braking zone a bit bigger, I think. So especially with these heavy cars, and we've got slightly increased braking zones as well. Yeah, That should Ooh. become the hot place for overtaking now, rather than turn three. Uh,
3: it would be nice to have one more than one overtaking spot there. But Matt, just for, I mean, I completely get what you said about the tyres and uh, and understand the new qualifying format. But for anyone listening that doesn't, say the the things let's clarify so during fp uh, quality one two three five cars get knocked out in each one then in the last one they fight for the top 10 places you used to have q2 you qualified on a tire and there was some tactics there because you could qualify on a better race tire if you thought you could make it so now are we going to have people qualifying on the soft tire but that doesn't carry on into the race does it so they don't have to like save the tires Everyone will still qualify on the softest tire and then choose what they're on in qualifying.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you wanted to be very engineer, you'd say they will pick the optimum tire for qualifying, but that will almost certainly be the softest tire. And what's interesting about Australia is they are bringing the C2 and the C3 tires. Okay. But instead of the C4, which normally they would just bring. Right next to each other, number-wise, they're actually bringing the very softest tire they make. So there's a gap between okay. what we were going to be calling the medium tire and the soft tire that we don't normally have.
3: All right, Carl, tell me if I've got this right. So if you can save some of that very softest tire, you've got basically a sprint tire to use somewhere in the race. And if these are multi-stop races, that could be interesting, couldn't it? That, that's a way to change your, your position in the pack, even if only kind of temporarily.
5: Yeah. So um, yeah, because of the rules, so they, I doubt we will be seeing many of the soft tires through practice. There might be one or two maybe runs as a qualifying, but it's essentially because it's one, it's it's a whole step different. So instead of a delta of 0.8 of a second between the tires, it's probably going to be about 1.2, 1.4. But because it's two steps softer than the next hardest tire they can have, it's it's probably going to fall apart and be quite firmly sensitive. So it's going to be fascinating to see how many of them they keep some teams might just not want to use it in the race at all they'll keep it as purely as a qualifying tire and then they'll just change straight onto the mediums and the hards but other teams like you say might want to take a gamble might want to keep a nice brand new set of those qualifying tires for maybe a a a 10-lap dash at the end to work through the pack
2: and to me the joker is they've resurfaced the whole track no one knows what the degradation on these tires is really going to be until they get out there and start running them and think about other brand new circuits or resurfaced circuits and how that changed the degradation profile of the tires it could oh yeah um the
5: yeah and what's really fascinating is pirelli are usually super conservative when they've come to the um when they've come to a change of tarmac they usually bring tires that are far too not far too hard but it's a nailed on one stop now they're bringing the fastest tire in the range and the softest tire they have makes me think that they're not going too conservative and i'm really hoping we're going to go back to a 2011 of having maybe even a three or four stop and the tires falling to bits and it just being carnage i really hope the tires are too soft for the track because i think that will give us dramatic uh, dramatic
3: strategy and races some people just want to watch the world burn
2: absolutely well i think regardless i think between the track changes and the tires they're bringing it's going to be a very exciting race weekend at australia and i've won i'm completely looking forward to it
3: all right uh, let's talk uh let's talk rules but first i want to just preview what's coming up a little bit i i have to have some good news bad news for our patrons our patron show on tuesday that we are going to do is cancelled but it is for a good reason because we had an opportunity to catch up with a top f1 media person i I shan't tease anymore will buxton is going to drop into the shed to have a chat with us and of course uh, will buxton has been everybody's F1 teacher on Drive to Survive and has been deep in the heart of F1 as an organization. So we'll be taking some listener questions and do a bit of blue sky thinking and uh, we'll fix Formula One uh, with Will Buxton. And then the Tuesday after that, we're catching up with F1 stat man, Sean Kelly. So the man who gives everyone their statistics on just about every media platform. So we really are spoiled for content. And in between that, We're going to have the Australian Grand Prix race review. It will still be at 8 o'clock, even though nearly a whole day will have passed. You're going to get up early in the morning, watch that race, but we're still going to get together in the evening for our race review of that. So join us 8 p.m. UK time live. So an exciting week coming up, and then we will try and hook up some extra Patreon content after that. If you do want to support us on Mr. Apex Podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash mist apex you'll get the extra content when we're not flooded with an embarrassment of amazing guests and uh join our patron uh only chat forums and uh and get an ad free feed as well okay let's talk about some uh racy car stuff hi brad hi spanish what do you think of the stewarding i i oh. have i have comments i have some issues. Um, new race control people, new ways of doing things, lots of promises about how races would be marshaled and how rules would be implemented. What's your take?
4: Yeah, so I, I kind of want to reserve judgment a bit longer. No, before I... snap snap to I'll, a conclusion. I'll give you my initial impressions. Um, yeah. So I certainly liked the the noises that were coming out of the direction of race control before the season started about being stricter on certain driving practices, um, stricter with track limits, that kind of thing. Um, I think we've seen some examples of, of inconsistency already, uh, and some examples of the kind of wrong decision that you just expect with any race control. I've I've come to expect with my with my old years now, my my very old age, of watching lots of racing that we're never going to get stewards who necessarily police things the way that that we might want them done, whether that's consistency or, or just the their view on the fault that certain people are or aren't at in certain incident, incidents. But I, I'm i kind of hopeful, I'm still hopeful that the the stewards that we've got this year, the race directors, are going to come through as the season progresses and keep keep on top of certain things, keep on top of drivers running too wide mm. or forcing other drivers off the track. I just haven't seen enough yet to confidently state whether or not they're doing a good or bad job. But we do have some examples, I think, from Saudi Arabia that we can talk about.
3: Okay, so it's good to clarify that there's two separate things that often get conflated. So one is race control. And last season, that was Michael Massey. And this season, it's been split between two people, I believe. And they've got a bit more support and they've got backup and teams like that. And then the stewarding is a completely different thing. So the stewarding is about making decisions that have been referred to them. So there's contact on track and then they decide, you know, whose fault is it. So I think we're going to start with the stewarding side of that, Brad. And I've got a little bit of a question, which might feel like a loaded question because you're a driver. But should we, I think, maybe, should we not have ex-racing drivers, and this is going to sound stupid, as the stewards, because you've all done proper naughty stuff. I've seen you, Brad, behave despicably on a go-kart track and take every little advantage... Are you not going to be guilty if you're a steward of a of a, of a, a race to go, ah, I would have done that too?
4: So I think there's good arguments to have former drivers and, and maybe good arguments against it as well. But I think you could probably use, uh, level those same arguments at uh, basically anybody in that role. Former drivers may well be from an era where yes. certain things were acceptable that aren't any longer, or they may well... <sighs> They, they're not necessarily going to have the the objective, um, level-headed judgment that a professional steward who knows the rule book inside out and, uh, and knows exactly how rules are supposed to be applied, having done it for years and looked at lots of different incidents, um, may, may well judge things. Having said that, I also don't think we have that anyway. I don't think we've got those people doing the stewarding role. We've, we've got one of the steward's roles filled each time by someone who just happens to be head of the local motorsport governing authority. They're kind of doing it as a jolly for the weekend. So that kind of thing seems like it's maybe more of a pressing thing to, to change. And I know you said that race control or the race director and the stewards are separate things and they are. Yeah. I feel pretty strongly that the decisions that the stewards come to are led by the culture set by the race director. They, um, they may not be making the ultimate decisions, you know, the ones making the votes, but I kind of feel like they will have discussions and they will set the ground rules ahead of time, and and that then that kind of pattern will be followed by the stewards during the races.
5: Yeah, the way I look at it, and I'm not sure if it's correct or not. The way I look at it is that the stewards are sort of the jury, and the race control is essentially the judge. Ooh, and the judge, nice too. Essentially, he has to refer things to the stewards, to jury, to so then they, whoever they are, come up with their decision and come back with a verdict. It's like when we had why we had the problem at Turn 4 in Brazil last year, whereas <sighs> the director didn't even refer it to the stewards to look at. So that's why there wasn't a decision, because it wasn't even referred to them. So um, I kind of agree with Brad. I think we need to leave it a little bit longer before we can see how the system sort of works. But I think it's very healthy to have a driver in there a former driver from whatever era because you'd always want a representative who knows what it's like in a car wheel to wheel rather than jimmy from the supermarket and someone else you know sort of there who who've never really driven a race car before and probably won't (laughs) see it from a driver's view so i think it's important to have that driver representation
4: there jimmy i've never heard of jimmy
3: i've heard of (laughs) derek uh, brad
4: i think what carl's saying there what he's implying there is it leads to exactly what i was saying about the The culture being set by the race director because if he refers certain things to the stewards and doesn't refer other things it's kind of by default saying these are things that we potentially don't want happening and these are things that i'm fine with so just the fact that he has that power kind of leads to that conclusion
2: so everyone knows i love doing research and although I may have read every single race decision from the stewards that's come out in the first two races as part of getting ready for the show, I've not gone back and looked at the rules, but to my mind, to my memory, the stewards can choose to view an incident on their own. Race control doesn't have to refer it to them. And this is where Brad's suggestion makes me think of tennis and the way they run their rules and the way they pick the people who make the line calls and stuff like that. I feel like we do need some leaders who are professionally trained and are one of the four or six people that will be leading the stewards, like the foreman on a jury, for example, from American jurisprudence through the case, whatever the call is, and and are confident enough that if they see something, even if the race director doesn't pick up on it, they're going to go, we're going to look at this anyway, because we think it's a violation of the rule. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like
0: a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Mm. Now, the thing
3: is, let's look at some specific examples here. So... I've said that I didn't think Albon, and I'm not an Albon fan, so don't accuse me of uh, being uh, Albon Fossey. uh, But, you know, I am vocally anti-Stroll a lot of time, so so that doesn't help this case. But I did think that it was really silly that Albon got a penalty for being alongside Stroll and then Stroll turning into him. Now, in our Slack group earlier, we we shared a a video that's doing the rounds on Reddit, and it's 14 incidents of Lance Stroll in F1, just turning into the apex when there's a car there and crunching the car on the inside. What what was interesting is, and it, this definitely does seem to be a, a Stroll thing. And you, you remember FP two famously with Max Verstappen where he, he crunched the inside. Obviously, that wasn't in a race. Uh, what's interesting is that in none of those situations did Lance Stroll get uh, called out for for being in the wrong, and I don't think he got a penalty for any of them either. Yet in all those situations, a bar bar one maybe where signs came out of the pit lane and up the appeared up at the inside on cold tires. And and maybe you could argue that that was more science's fault. Um, But in most of those situations, I'm following the Brad Philpott lane system. And my general feeling with those racing rules, Brad is, you know, you can't turn where a car exists. So if there's a car there and you, you turn in, it's your fault for having turned in. But I find myself on the wrong side of most of these stewarding decisions. And the phrase that kept coming up over and over on the commentary was, "Oh well, he, he owned the corner. He had that corner. It was his corner." Brad, when do you own a corner? When's it your corner?
4: Yeah. Okay. Th- thanks for thanks for phrasing it like that because that makes it really difficult for me to explain. Good. Just for just for any new listeners who who haven't heard this whole lane system yeah. thing, manager just referred to. It's just uh, it's something which should be a rule but isn't a rule. Yeah. Um, that I use to judge who is moving towards whom in a situation and um, and essentially uh, who was the one that needed to stop moving towards the other person who actually caused the crash. Um, and sometimes it applies in, in these situations where you've got a car turning in on another one. You ask who who owns the corner or when do you own a corner? And it's a little bit situation specific, but I do like to try and apply slightly more black and white rules to these things than than stewards or race control yeah Yeah, let's start
3: um, with a broad brush and then we can obviously get into nuance
4: if there is a car next to you when if there's a car on a piece of track that you want to use you can't use that piece of track it's kind of a simple that that's um at its most extreme form it's as simple as that however when that car arrives on that piece of track that you want to use does come into it in certain situations so let me just try and give a couple of quick examples yeah if, if you're in a battle with a car, you're ahead of them, and just as you turn into the corner and just before you reach the apex, that other car suddenly arrives, whether under control, out of control or whatever. The dive bomb. A, a dive bomb in its most extreme sense. They weren't there. And just before you, you drive onto that piece of track you wanted, they're there. You, you could leave them room. If you saw it in time, you could leave them room. You'll both live to fight another day. And it's probably in your best interest. But if you have a crash, if you do make contact, you probably wouldn't blame the driver ahead because the other person appeared so late, you can't really expect them to have seen it.
3: But, but if On you're the- if you're the driver coach in that situation, you might say to their that driver, hey, we, we could have finished that race today if you'd had just enough awareness and just opened up at, at the end.
4: Yeah, but at, at my most extreme example I'm trying to use here, Yeah, it's so late that you you wouldn't expect them to necessarily have known it was coming they're already focusing on the corner exit or something else however the most aware drivers may well still have a an eye on the mirror at that point and give the room and live to fight another day matt, the you, other, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, matt
3: just before you move on matt i know you had a quick point on that
4: yeah well i wanted to ask brad because you know they did come
2: out with updated overtaking rules and specifically they said among the various factors let's say we're making a t- overtake up the inside They will consider if the overtaking car's front tires are alongside the other car by no later than the apex of the Mm. corner. And I just wanted to ask, does that make sense according to your system? And does that seem like that's maybe a little different than what we've used in the past? Brad's making a face.
4: So if the the front wheels of the overtaking car are alongside the car ahead by the apex, is that what you said? No later than. I mean... Uh, why would it be late if it's later than the apex, then the other cars already made the apex. So the overtake can't happen. So that doesn't really work in that wording as far as I can see it. And and that seems like they're giving um, leeway to the overtaking car more in a more extreme way than I would probably judge it. I'm I'm saying the example I just gave was kind of one end of the spectrum. The car arrives there at the very last moment and the car ahead who's Mm. defending effectively um, wouldn't necessarily be expected to know they were there. I just wanted to give the other end of that. So the the other extreme is there is a car next to you, alongside you, all the way to the braking zone and through the turn-in phase, and you still try and take the apex. In that situation, the blame should really be apportioned wholly on the driver turning in because they've had every chance to know you were there, or know the overtaking car was there. They were there the whole time. They never disappeared. They were always there, and yet you still tried to take the apex. So so that's kind of pretty easy to judge that it was the turning in cars fault. And then you've got every situation in between those two where yeah, you could argue that there was a move was probably going to happen. So you probably should have been looking in your mirrors or they were almost alongside or kind of hovering there. There's lots and lots of different moves on that spectrum of overtakes where you could apportion more or less blame to either driver. And I yeah. feel like the Albon move, if that's what we're going to talk about specifically at Saudi Arabia was somewhere towards the, the second example I gave, where, where the they car were there. was kind yeah. of always there. It wasn't like he suddenly was at the apex just before Stroll arrived. Stroll turned in whilst the car was already there. So that puts, in my mind, puts at least a large proportion of the fault on the turning in car to leave that room.
3: Matt, just yeah. a quick one.
4: Yeah, I just, this is the question I wanted to
2: ask. If I turned Alex Albon and his car into a block of cement and set him on the apex there, it, it looked like to me Stroll was going to hit him anyway. Is that your impression of it as well as a driver?
4: Yeah, I think I think Stroll's argument would be that that he was entitled to the corner or whatever, or that Albon's move was too late or something like that. And, and I heard you say pre-show that part of the stewards' decision to penalize Albon was that he'd locked his brakes and therefore that showed that he was out of control but I really don't buy that because you'll lock your brakes for various different reasons. And it seemed to me that Albon locked up when he realized Stroll was driving towards (laughs) him. And it was kind of a last ditch attempt to avoid the contact. It was like Albon was trying to do Stroll's job for him and still there was contact and still Albon was the one that got penalized. So I don't really buy that. I think, and that's the kind of lame justification that I wish the stewards wouldn't give. I wish they would apply more of a strict framework to judging these decisions rather than you know i mean that that is a that's such an easily debunked um reason for them to give that it was alban's fault that kind of thing shouldn't re-enter into it
5: they have tried to kind of cover this off and almost empower the stewards in a way with these overtaking guidelines which haven't been fully published but um a few of them there's a couple of really important bits in this that we've seen from the words and one of them is the phrase that you have to if you're being if you're the defender and a car is attacking you, you have to leave them space on the inside or the outside. So if you're saying that Stroll didn't leave them space, then that's fair enough. It's a slam dunk. Stroll does say that he actually left him space. And I am I'm, I'm trying to look at a steward here and try to justify why they came up with that decision. Because Stroll Stroll said he he left space. They'll be able to see it on the data and he does look a little bit wider. I think why Album was penalized was that he actually hits the curb on the inside because stroll has forced him onto there, but he hit the curb and that's bounced him into stroll and he hasn't bounced. And you can see there's a clear movement from the Williams from as soon as he hits the curb sharp outside into stroll. But I agree with Brad stroll should have left more room and they both would have lived to fight another day, but it's, it's quite important that the wording changes they have made in these overtaking guidelines. So, um and, I don't think they've been applied really properly on this steward's decisions. So that's surprising. Yeah.
3: So I think actually, Kyle and Brad, them are are sort of loudly agreeing with each other that the album was forced into the situation that ended up making him make contact.
2: Uh, yeah, I would agree, and I think it feeds back into Brad's point about the culture.
4: We've changed the rules, but the stewards' culture hasn't mm. yet updated itself. Brad. And I, I just want to make the point that I'm actually not saying this is a hundred percent Stroll's fault. I actually think in this situation, racing incident may well be a decent um, decision. I know you don't like that, but so I'm certainly not saying this is completely Stroll's fault. What an idiot. Stroll does have a history of being, as Matt put it earlier, apex blind, you know, getting to a certain point on the approach to a corner and then just entirely ignoring his mirrors where, you know, there is still legitimate time for a car to appear and they're allowed to be there after stroll has already kind of switched his focus. So you yeah. do need to reserve some of your peripheral vision and um, attention to the mirrors at that point of a corner, particularly if you're in a battle, it's not like, it's not like a car has come from 10 seconds back and suddenly they're there. You know, you should be aware that you're in a fight. Yeah. And at some point, if you no longer know where they are, if you don't know for certain where that car is, you're almost obliged to leave room in case they're in the place you're turning towards. You should know where they are. So um any, anyway I'm yeah. not, I'm not apportioning 100% blame at all to Stroll in this situation. He just does have previous and this is a little bit indicative of some of the other things he's done in the past.
3: Well, Toby W in the live chat points out one of those which is Sonoda in Brazil. And that was one of the incidents that was on that clip brad and the commentary was, "Oh, a bit optimistic there." And it was one of these situations where he kind of appeared at turn 1, but by the time like before they were turning in, Tsunoda is there, Kyle. So I think what Brad's pointed out is there's two different factors, where you are on track and, and when you appear there. Obviously, if it was on a straight, it's it's not really controversial. At the start, if you move over, even if someone's wing is there, that's your stupid fault for having moved over and taken, taken their wing. But on the corner, the timing of when they appear, uh, it, you know, it, but I'm, I'm glad that this is at least being addressed because we've had so long in F1 with it just being kind of like a vague coin toss. Yeah.
5: In Stroll's defense for balance is with the Brazil one with Sonoda. Sonoda come from miles back. Yes. It was a huge so was dive more bomb. Extreme. Yeah. And as Brad said, we were discussing this earlier in the group chat that um, Stroll does seem in a certain phase of the corner entry to switch off the mirrors and put the blinkers on, like you put on horses and is just purely focused on what's happening ahead of him and not alongside him. So mm. We actually see this in the Abu Dhabi incident with, not the Abu Dhabi, sorry, the Jeddah incident with um, with Albon, that Stroll only starts giving respect, space reactionary. When he can see Albon's flying towards him on the inside, he opens the wheel, whereas he's in the battle. He really shouldn't have turned in that early anyway and maybe left a bit more room, but he did a sort of react. But in a lot of, on that on that sort of crash reel, so to speak, that we saw earlier, the streamable <laughs> thing, um, a lot of them were that Stroll had already committed to the corner once he commits he turns off his peripheral vision and just goes for it now that's kind of okay but he doesn't really react it's not it's not self-preservation so always and as Mm. brad said if you know and and you lose sight of where your competitor is you have to give them the benefit of the doubt and you have to give your longevity the benefit of the doubt and give space and just save yourself that's what we saw hamilton being so effective at last year was just give the corner up just you know they're going to be there some somewhere on the inside. And what you don't see from the cameras is um, Formula One cars, they have no vision. They almost have hardly any peripheral vision. It's almost done on a feeling and in their mirrors and whether they can just see it in the side and their peripheral vision. Yeah. So um, Stroll does seem to turn that off and he does seem to be the the worst driver for it. But again, he can't see much in his defence. He can't see much and a lot of them. He has been dive-bombed.
4: Did I hear um, Kyle or Matt mention that the driving rules haven't been fully published? Because, I mean... Yeah. For the new transparent FIA governorship governance, that sounds really, I mean, it sounds what we would expect, but it's very frustrating because we're trying to judge what's allowed and what isn't allowed. And there are things, there are rules which we're yeah. not allowed to yeah, see, I which seems bizarre.
2: Yeah, Matt. Yeah, well, aside from having been on about the technical directives forever and not knowing what 90% of the actual rules for the sport are because only the teams get to see them and the teams leak them when they feel it's in their own self-interest. I am actually, having gone through all the decisions, noticing that there was nothing about Perez and the safety car in the officially published documents in the FIA column. So I'm agreeing with Brad about the transparency thing. We've been talking about transparency, but I'm concerned that we're not always seeing it.
3: Uh, yes, and, and we can't do anything about that. However, what we can do is we can make we can try and be inconsistent and evolve our own little Missed Apex shed rules. So we could call them the the shed rules of F1. We could call them the Brad Philpott lane system. I think where I really want to end on this, actually the Sonoda example is a good example. And I think a a similar one is actually Lewis Hamilton up the inside of Albon as well, where he was given a penalty for, for spinning Albon around. When is it too late? And there's a reason Interlagos is the track that brings these situations up because these are tracks where you can successfully make separate lines and go up the inside, Kyle. So when, when do you think is, is it too late? Cause I looked at the Hamilton one and the Sonoda one and I thought, ah, oh, inside car, fair punt. Didn't we praise Daniel Ricciardo at Monza? Didn't we praise Daniel Ricciardo for being the last of the late breakers? Do we want to kill the lunge, Kyle?
5: No, you don't want to kill the lunge, but there is a limit. And we've seen this, last year and in this new updated overtaking guidelines they actually address this and there's a very powerful comment in here which I think addresses what happened in lap one in Abu Dhabi as well with Verstappen and Hamilton and this is where I think it's too late if you dive bomb into somebody and you stay on the track but you give them no ability of staying on the track then that's too late like the one on Album, look at where the trajectory is going to take him it was probably taking him right to the outside of the circuit and there would have been if the car on the outside would have remained side by side they would have been forced off so they actually changed the wording to the car being overtaken must be able to make the corner while remaining within the track within the limits of the mm. track which is this wasn't in the wording last year but this is why they let Hamilton keep the position on lap one in Abu Dhabi because Verstappen dive bombed in and only just stayed on the track himself and yeah. left no room for the other car. This is maybe why we're seeing people behaving more this this year. So I think that's why that's, that's when it's too late. You have to look at the trajectory of the car, their speed, and probably where they're going to end up after the contact if they make contact. And if you can clearly see they were going to fly to the outside of the track and crowd the other car off, then that
3: is too late. And very, very hard to make that judgment at the apex. So like I look at that Sonoda incident and go, right, was Sonoda going to fly off the outside of turn one and force stroll off was Hamilton going to fly off of that corner and force Albon off I don't I don't think so uh but Brad
4: you have to allow that situation to develop and if you're the driver that stops the situation from being able to develop then then in my mind it's your fault so uh yes uh, okay so if you if you don't, so say uh, I'm trying to remember the Brazil incident you're talking about with Sonoda and Stroll, but I assume it's Sonoda going to the inside of yes, turn yeah, one yeah, and yeah. Stroll turning towards the apex. Yeah. So in that situation, because it never got to play out, because we yes, didn't I'm get to you. see I'm whether or not Sonoda was never given a chance to prove that he was going to make the apex I'm with you. So had Stroll left one car width to the inside and Sonoda had then still clattered into Stroll. In my mind, that then becomes Sonoda's fault because Stroll has left enough room for a car to exist. If that car could make that legitimate overtake and get to the apex but run no wider, then they both go through there side by side. And then whatever happens next happens next. But because the car on the outside tried to take the apex, there was no room for the car on the inside to exist we never got to see, Sonoda never got to demonstrate that he was making a clean pass. Yeah. The pass was cut short. Therefore, it's the car on the outside's fault, clearly Stroll's fault. So, and and for example, Abu Dhabi, just to finish with what Carl um, was saying, lap one with Hamilton and, and Verstappen. If Hamilton and Verstappen had been side by side and Verstappen had clattered into the side of him, it would have been obvious for us all to see that that was his fault. As it happened, we kind of got to see that anyway because we got to see where Verstappen ended yes. up. We got to actually yeah. see where he really went and you can then extrapolate had Hamilton stayed alongside, Verstappen would would have forced him off the track. So there's a couple of examples there where you you can see it. One of them ended in a crash. One of them, the other car bailed off, off across the runoff. But I think that's the extreme. Yeah. That's where we can start saying black and white. This is fine. This is not fine.
3: So with the Sonoda and, and the Hamilton one we talked about, had the outside car left room on the inside and then gone out to the outside, but the inside car had still then gone and hit them or then forced them off, that's that, That's kind of the outside car's only way to prove that the inside car was, was out of control. And I, I actually like this. I think this is pretty consistent, Kyle. I think we're getting to a place where we can start judging these kind of inside overtakes consistently.
5: Yeah, we're getting there. In the other... Yeah, so in those examples... Another thing that the stewards have at their disposal is the data. So they can look at their data traces and their GPS and how fast they are on a particular line. So say with the Sonoda one, he may have been five to six kilometers an hour quicker going in there than he had on previous laps. They'll use that as part of the judgment. Even if, you couldn't see what the result was, where he would have ended up. They'll be like, Yeah, but he was also quicker than he had been in that yeah, corner, yeah, so yeah, he very yeah. would have been going. So they looking. Well, like at yeah, yeah, but well. you, could,
3: you could go quicker knowing that you then have to break harder and do different things on the apex. So obviously, like the telemetry on an overtaking move is going to be different to a, a standard lap. So I'd be slightly nervous of that, Brad.
4: I'd just like to throw in, this is also part of my yeah. lane system, which I haven't published, but one day I'm going to have to <laughs> write this down and codify yeah, yeah, this. Yeah. But, but part of the kind of general theme is at the point of contact, could either of the drivers have done something to avoid the contact? Yeah. And say the Sonoda example you're talking about, Sonoda could have done nothing more to avoid contact. He, he had potentially, we never got to see, but potentially done all in his power to stay tight to the inside. And the other car was coming towards him the other car had every opportunity to not keep coming towards him. You know, the other car was on a trajectory that was going to end in a crash, and he had the opportunity to just alter that. The car on the inside could go no further to the inside. They're already pressed up against the inside. And you can use this for when the car's on the outside as well. There's no obligation for the car on the outside to, to drive off track, but maybe they will for self-preservation. But if the car on the inside is continuing to move towards them, there's only one person in that situation who can avoid the contact. And it's the one moving towards the other person.
3: I love this. I love trying to pick apart the very soul of racing, the very soul of Formula One. We'd love your feedback at feedback at MissedApex.net or spanners at MissedApex.net or Matt at MissedApex.net. I am getting better at reading, replying to and addressing the listener feedback. So I'm going to go to a a listener email next. Although I will say, in about 10 minutes time, we're going to go to a a pre-recorded conversation because Matt wasn't meant to be on this week. So earlier in the week, he caught up with Matthew Summerfield and they've got a 25-minute tech section, uh, which is, I've caught snippets of. Very, very uh, interesting talking about the current state of Formula One tech. And then I believe there's a 45-hour extra patron. How long is it, Matt? How long is the extra patron-only bit?
2: I don't know. I ran out of computer right, space. Okay. So I can't
3: calculate it. <laughs> so I will say it's not like we've it's not a paywall, we've not hidden the extra. What I said to them is is give me give me your best content, give me your twenty-five minutes, but then inevitably they then waffle on after that. So we cut that out and we put that on as a, a patron bonus. So if you want to get that, patreon.com forward slash missed apex. I wouldn't say Tech Times the reason to sign up to Patreon, but well, you know, what, what, <laughs> whatever it gets you there. So we're going to get to that in about um, in about ten minutes time. But I just want to uh, answer Ian's email. Ian says, uh, "Hi, love the podcast. Thank you, Ian." After the leave a review <laughs> after the last few safety car restarts we've seen with uh, we've seen Verstappen in P two alongside the leader. I think that's right, Ian. Yeah, in uh, in Abu Dhabi and as well in in Jeddah. Ian continues, I wonder about his right to the track in that position. We saw Leclerc run him wide in Jeddah, but my question is is there anything stopping Leclerc from just running him into the wall if he's alongside? If there's no passing under a safety car, then surely Verstappen has no right to any room alongside. Yeah, maybe we could just like, you could have six cars all side by side, just slightly behind each other in theory. Now Brad, I know that you tweeted about this and I I saw your your tweet and I I actually ended up thinking it was a a bit harsh on Verstappen. Has he done anything
4: wrong? So, yeah, you're right. I tweeted about this and I had a lot of feedback, uh, which is good, you know, because I Mm. I learned more about the the intricacies of it um, through people's replies. What was your initial premise? My my initial premise was that Verstappen was, again, illegally driving alongside a car during a restart. So uh, we don't see anyone else do this. So that's the first thing. Restarts in Formula One, as far as I can remember, have been single file. You you start one behind another. It's not double file restart like a NASCAR race. It's always single file. Verstappen has a couple of times, um, I can think of a couple of of clear examples, driven alongside the car that is leading. Now that car is supposed to be effectively at that point, the pace car, the safety car. Mm. They are setting the pace for the restart. Now the rule says, and I don't have it in front of me, but I'll, I'll paraphrase reasonably closely. The rule says that you can't do anything which could um, endanger or um, impede the restart. Now you can read, that's one of those FIA rules you can kind of interpret a couple of different ways. The way I read that is you can't do anything which impedes the safety car, the effective safety car, the race leader at that point from conducting the restart, the way they want to do it, which may well be warming their tires. It may well be taking the racing line or, or using any line they want. By driving alongside them, even if you don't technically overtake them, although Verstappen did overtake Hamilton at Abu Dhabi and was not penalised for it, um, you are impeding their ability to conduct the restart in the way that they want to. And you could argue it is endangering the restart because if that driver isn't expecting you there and they they try and take a line or, or warm their tyres or something, you could then make contact. But. At the very least, it's certainly not a standard way to perform a restart. It's not the way Mm. that we've become accustomed to them happening. And I know in a lot of areas, Verstappen has you know, tested the rules, stretched the rules to their their kind of limit Uh of what you can get away with. But Mm. I think it's probably pretty obvious that given the two different scenarios, people doing whatever the heck they want and being alongside each other um, or single file, one of those is safe and straightforward to follow and police. And one of them is... Someone kind of harrying and bullying the leader to try and gain an advantage. And I know as race director, which one of those I would stamp out. Kyle?
5: Yeah, this is quite interesting. Um, I agree with Brad on this. I don't think it it's not really on. I mean, Danny points out in the chat that um, Montoya used to pull alongside. Now, it's quite hard to word the rules for this. So I do think the important thing is it's saying single file, which is one after the other. I think how everyone would interpret that rather than overlapped. Now they can't put a rule in saying you can't overlap because they all overlap when they're jostling for position. But as we saw in Abu Dhabi last year, Verstappen was affecting the ability of the pace setter, which was Hamilton at the time, his chance to restart as he wanted because he pinned him up on the inside of the curb and he couldn't go as wide as he as wide as he wanted. We saw it again in Jeddah, although Charles Leclerc was very very. Intelligent, the way he went about it, he basically walked Verstappen right out to the outside of the track and almost off the track.
4: I'm pretty but, sure he also did it at Bahrain, so I think that's actually now uh, the last three races.
5: Okay, thanks for that. Um, yeah, it's it, it's going to be interesting. They might have to do some sort of a mid-season wording change or a, an agreement or a directive to say you cannot draw alongside or draw at least halfway alongside the car in front, because at times it's almost front wheels level. With them. And in my understanding of safety car restarts, that's not really on. But, you know, in Verstappen's defense, there's nothing in the rules that says he can't do it. He maximizes and pushes everything to the absolute limit. So, of course, before until he's actually pulled up and they say you cannot do that, he's going to carry on doing it. He's found an exploit and he's exploiting it.
4: The tricky part for me, Carl, is that there is a, a very explicit part which says you're not allowed to overtake the leader, which he has overstepped in the past and not been penalized for that either. So you can kind of understand him thinking, well, I can do kind of whatever I want in these situations. And I never even get a warning for it or or get pulled up on it. So, and and it is giving him, I know it hasn't worked out for him recently, but it is potentially giving him an advantage. You know, he, the reason he's doing it for a reason. He's not, he's not just doing it for fun. Um, and I think Leclerc did deal with it quite well by effectively like running him fully out of track. Like, no, um, but it would be pretty straightforward, wouldn't it? Just to say restarts must be single file. And the only time you could draw alongside someone is if effectively the car in front has braked erratically and you've had to take avoiding action. You can kind of argue that one away. That is also in the rules. You're not allowed to accelerate or, or brake mm. um, erratically or, or unpredictably. Well, yeah. I would yeah. like to throw out there that if the lead car
2: effectively becomes the safety car, well, what would happen if the lead driver drove alongside the safety car? Is that in any way, shape, or form allowed? No, you have to follow the safety car. And so, to me, right alongside all we're talking about, a simple clarification, including following the lead car becomes a safety car. You solve that problem. That said, it is kind of genius from Verstappen to do that. I love Leclerc's response to it. Yeah, and
5: going back to what Bradley mentioned earlier, um, it's a culture thing. So, if the race director starts immediately getting on the radio and saying tell max he cannot do that like he cannot do that stop it and we'll sort the rules out and once they've had that direction from race control during the race they have to kind of adhere to it really and if we want to open that can of worms the race can director can apparently do what he likes on the safety car under the old rulings too so- soon <laughs> so um so you know you could argue that way and as matt says you know it's you can't blame Verstappen for doing this. Yeah, it's, it's a bit out of order and not really on, but he's not being pulled up on it. There's nothing definitively says he can't and he's still not getting pulled up on it. So, he, of course, he's going to keep doing it because it does put massive pressure onto the person sort of leading. So it's, it's a clever way, if not very gentlemanly way, to go about it. It's exploiting everything. It's very Michael Schumacher, like absolutely exploiting every nook and cranny you can. But is it too far well, I don't know. I I agree. I don't I don't think it's on, and yeah. I think they they should clarify and say, look, you have to stay behind. You are not allowed to overlap unless it's accentuating circle or force majeure. You know, unless you have got you've
3: got brake checks and you can't <laughs> avoid overlapping. You you must not overlap. For context. Kyle talking about is it gentlemanly? Like Kyle is pathetically gentlemanly to a fault. Like all his racing friends tease him relentlessly about oh that's not fair. Gordon no, you four go past. No, that was that was awfully unsporting of me to be fast like that through that corner. So I just want the context to Kyle's comment. Um, Matt, and I think the final thing would be maybe to clear up what was going on with Perez and Signs, because I didn't understand any of that.
2: Okay, well, the situation is actually very simple Um, because of the layout at Jeddah, where the safety car line is exiting the pits is difficult to see when you're on track. Signs, because you're allowed to race up out of the pits until you hit that line, until you hit the exit of the pits, was trying to get ahead of Perez and actually was a full car length ahead of him when they hit the safety car line. But because there's a turn there, Perez actually gained position, ran signs wide so he couldn't come onto the track, and wound up ahead of him. So too long, don't read. Perez (laughs) winds up overtaking signs under the safety car. No one's going to argue about that. That's what happened.
3: Okay, okay. So I somehow missed this in, like, decades of watching Formula 1, and I've heard the term (laughs) safety car line, but at least now I think I understand it. If there's a safety car and there's people pitting – there's a line at the end of the pit lane, and, and whoever's ahead, when the, the the car leaving the pits, if you get to that point, whichever cars you're ahead of, you stay ahead of. The, the thing being that you're likely to have less momentum than the cars that are, are coming around the track, and so therefore you have that. Yeah, so why, why wasn't that just sorted out on the spot? Because you could run the replay. What's this VRS that we've been hearing about, where they said they can just refer stuff and look at the video? Why didn't they just look at the video and go, yeah, Perez was behind, swap.
2: Well, this is kind of the thing I was complaining about uh, because we don't know. All we know is that it was looked at and it was said at the end of the race, oh, we examined it. The place was given back. But the problem that everybody at the time had with it was the place wasn't given back till after the safety car restart. And so the question is, why did it take that long to look at a simple replay and say, nope, you got to give the place back. Places have been given back before under the safety car it happened. I think at Abu Dhabi, at, at um, Jeddah last year, in fact, with Hamilton and Ocon, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Okay, guys, I think we have put the world to rights. We've solved the racing rules down the inside. No thanks to Brad. I think we've done a good job here today. We would love to hear what you guys think in the YouTube comments. And also, we would just love it if you would just share mistapex.net with your friends. Even if you've got two followers even if you've got 2 million followers, any tweet, Facebook post, recommending it to someone at work. That's the kind of low-level campaign that we've been running for the last eight years. And that's basically the only way that we can spread word of mouth. It's our most effective tool. You're a bunch of tools. Our effect. No, that's not right. No, wait. You're our effective tool for making our way in the world and the iTunes charts. I believe in America, we got to 27 in the iTunes charts. And uh, something very similar in the UK sports charts as well. So this word of mouth thing, is working. Please tell your friends that Mist Apex isn't that bad. Share mistapex.net. And you can follow our panel, race driver guy, Brad Philpott, at Bradley Philpott on Twitter. And, uh, and you've got your T-shirt says BRKC. That's the British Rental Karting Championship, which you run and is awesome. And we can watch live, can't we?
4: You can. It's next weekend, um, so we'll have live footage uh, covered on Motorsport TV and also on our YouTube channel. So just search for I think our YouTube channel name is British Kart or maybe British Championship. I think we've got quite a good handle okay. on YouTube. But anyway, just just search for BRKC and you'll see all the action live next weekend. Uh, it's actually the grand final will be exactly when you're recording the next mix- Missed Apex okay. episode. Don't so watch don't, it. Don't, don't watch Missed Apex. Watch the grand final of the BRKC.
3: Okay, that's more antagonisting antagonistic than i wanted it to be matt maybe we could get a, a link to the show notes below as well um kyle at kyle power f1 on twitter you're not racing in the british rental Car championships which you normally do
5: yeah i normally race well the last time we did it i was the i was i was your number two in the pit lane reporting oh yeah and that was that was quite good it was quite different because obviously i've raced i've got through to semi-finals a couple of times i know what it's like so it's nice to catch the drivers as they come out and ask it how it went from their point of view but unfortunately um I'm away and I can't make it this weekend but I will try to make it next year so I can be embarrassed by world champions <laughs> on the indoor circuit.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's it is a really really high standard, so do check out BRKC. Matt is still at Matt PT 55. His wife, who you should follow because she writes interesting books, is at A Weaver writes. The links to all the show notes below. Uh, the links to everything we've talked about appear in the show notes below magically somehow i've got no idea who does it but they do just magically appear uh, so do go and follow our panel go and follow <laughs> brad kyle and matt trumpets and we've got tech time coming up now uh, don't tune out know, it's super interesting it's going to answer a lot of your questions about the state of f1 2022 tech so we'll be back shortly after i press all the correct buttons in all the right orders
2: It's time for Tech, and once again, our presence is graced by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, aka Summers F1, who is Technical Editor at Motorsport.com. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time.
6: No problem, Matt. It's great to be on again.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's really nice to have you, and there's so much to talk about with these new regulations. Let's say we dive right in to the main topic.
6: Yeah, let's go for it.
2: And you know, the main topic isn't going to be all your lovely aerodynamic tire squirting doodads, but it's going to be the fact that questions are being raised about the Mercedes power unit. And um, more so after this last weekend, where we, we kind of saw all the Mercedes teams at the back of their respective ends of the field. And uh, I mean, is it, could it really just be they all randomly had terrible aero problems at the same time?
6: Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's. I think there's competing aspects going on here, not only from a chassis side point of view, from the aerodynamic side of, uh, of things, but also, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, the power unit does seem to be a little out of kilter when you compare it to the likes of the, the Ferrari and Honda, who clearly uh, made a, a sizable step forward compared to where they were relative to Mercedes in the past. Uh, and then also, obviously, you have to bargain for the fact that Alpine or Renault have also made a step forward uh, based on the fact that you know they hadn't really put too much development into both their chassis or power unit over the last few years. So there's a lot of juggling going on at the moment to try to to get you know a good hold on where the actual issues are for for these teams. But it's clear to see that the Mercedes teams are struggling in in some respects.
2: Okay, and one of the observations that was made over the weekend um, was that they looked particularly weak. In, in the last sector is it possible that their um energy recovery system setup has fallen behind that of the honda and the um ferrari one might
6: ask yeah i mean i noticed it on norris's qualifying lap or one of norris's qualifying laps from the onboard uh you could see down the right hand side of the steering wheel you've got the the, the sock the state of charge uh, and you can see how the energy is being deployed in that situation. And you could see that there was some clipping going on uh, on the straights in order to try to, to measure the amount of energy that's then deployed further into the lap. And as you mentioned, obviously, when they get to the end of the lap, if they're not recovering the energy they require throughout the course of the lap to top up the battery, uh You're going to come into this problem of having energy deployment issues, and I think Mercedes or the Mercedes-powered teams are having this issue because it would appear that most of the Mercedes-powered teams are all having problems with drag. Again, brought on by other issues as well. Uh, I think the biggest issue that every single team in the field is having is still the porpoising issue, Uh, and and that is manifesting itself into some of this, this, you know, big drag penalty that we're seeing for the teams. On top of obviously they've missed targets with you know, the the aerodynamic configurations that they're running. We only have to look at what Mercedes did this weekend with their rear wing, you know, just taking a a massive slice out the the upper flap to try to mitigate those drag issues that they had.
2: Okay, so this brings me to uh, my first listener-generated question, which I thought was an interesting one, although uh, I want to loop back and talk about some other stuff in a minute, which is uh, Maria from our patron group asked are the engine setups each team's choice or the works team presets it all for each team and it seems like to me this means we're going to have to talk about the difference between maps and modes a little bit
6: yeah so obviously the power unit manufacturer has their own engineers embedded within each of the teams and they make changes based upon the setup that the teams actually have as well so they have to work side by side with the team so that means that the maps or engine modes that each of the teams are using are different to one another, but they are dictated to them by the Mercedes engineer that's embedded within the team. So obviously they are there as a sort of safety protocol to stop the team running the engine or the power unit too hard under certain conditions so that you end up with a, a, you know, a total failure on your hands. Uh, obviously, you still end up with those situations, as we saw over the, the course of this weekend, in fact, but it's there to try to to add that sort of firewall for the team so that they can't just run the engine at full tilt all the time and then lay the blame at the power unit manufacturer's corner uh, when things do go wrong.
2: Okay, so but basically there's room for the teams to adapt how the power unit runs to their particular needs, what they think will be the fastest way around the track for them, where they recover and so on and so forth.
6: Yeah, I mean, as you can understand, each of the the Mercedes, if we're taking Mercedes as the, as an example here, each of those teams within that stable have their own uh, coefficient of drag uh, on their car. So how they are setting their car up for the weekend, based on you know the the downforce or the drag that they're they're running in particular, then they want the power unit to work within that those parameters as well to get the best from it. So there's always going to be a bit of a trade off between aero and power unit. Uh, But as I say, that engineer that's embedded with the team will make some of those decisions and help the team to extrapolate the best they can for their particular arrangement of power unit and uh, the chassis side.
2: Okay. and Now, how does that relate to, like, we used to hear about party mode, but then we also hear about engine maps. Uh, Could you just maybe sort that out um, so that people understand what's probably incorrectly being talked about when the TV commentators get into it?
6: Okay, so obviously party mode was something that we used to have back in the day where uh, qualifying you could run a different engine mode to what you can throughout the course of the race. So now the engine modes are fixed. Uh, You can't run a different engine mode in qualifying to what you can in the race. That means that you can't do some of the exorbitant tricks that used to go on in terms of the way that the fuel was run, the oil was sent into the combustion chamber, uh, and a a plethora of other tricks that were uh, happening uh, around that kind of era. However, the drivers still have tools at their disposal uh, whilst they're out on track to be able to make adjustments. So you have uh, different settings on rotaries or buttons, et cetera, that the driver can select to try to minimise uh, the problems that they might encounter. For argument's sake, they might use a little bit too much energy um, whilst they're out there in a preparation lap um, or don't recover enough, and then you have to compensate for that during the, the course of the qualifying lap. So there's always adjustments being made in order that obviously you can get the best possible performance out of the power unit, depending on the trim that you're currently running in.
2: Okay, thanks a lot. I I hope that helps clear it up for people a little bit. Uh, The power unit, if I'm understanding, I'm just going to restate it to make sure I understand it. The power unit can only be run in one mode, is what I'm going to call it, or one setting. But inside of that setting, teams can make different ways to run it that might be more fuel efficient or recover energy recover more energy more quickly and so on and so forth
6: yeah it's all about getting the right balance and that's obviously especially important during the course of a race where you might want to deploy more energy on one lap because you're you're chasing down one of your rivals but then know that that's going to give you a penalty into the next lap so you'll have to charge uh, with a more aggressive harvesting energy mode. Uh, to recover what you you've lost throughout the course of it that's, that's what you call state of charge you know the difference between um the levels of energy that you have available to you at any one point
2: okay um i'm i'm going to go back and ask real quick in terms of drag one thing we have heard that i think is is kind of obvious is that one solution to the porpoising that everybody's trying to solve is just simply to run the car higher so it doesn't bounce off the ground as much what kind of a drag penalty are we looking at there if all if this is something the mercedes well, you know in particular is afflicted by and they're having to run the car higher is that like a lot more than say putting um you know putting a monaco spec wing on at monza or something like that
6: yeah i mean i think it has more issues involved in that because it's not a static problem you have to think about the the way in which that the car behaves over the course of a lap so teams will work on a generalised aero map for the entire uh, circuit, but obviously that then just feeds into problems that you have in certain corners. So having this porpoising issue obviously makes it more difficult when you're having it over the over a large range of conditions as well. So as you say, when you raise the ride height, then that kind of feeds back into having both downforce loss, you know that you. Don't just have to think about drag. We're we're, we're talking about a reduction in downforce as well by raising the the ride height. So you're going to lose downforce in some of the key areas of the circuit where you you really want it. And then on on top of that, you know, you you then carry the penalty of having additional drag on the car as well, which is, as you say, tantamount to running a a much higher wing angle. Uh, And that obviously then penalises you down the straights. Uh, You you have to consider how much they are down. If we're talking about the Mercedes-powered teams again, in the speed traps when you compare them to the Ferrari and the Honda, for example, we're we're talking sort of 10 kilometers an hour. It's a huge difference in terms of um, straight line speed. Uh, And obviously the teams will have to work towards trying to minimize that so that they can get that performance back without losing speed in the corners as well. So it's a really difficult problem to solve. Uh, And, you know, it's not, not something that you can ultimately solve at the track with what they've got available at their disposal right now, so they're kind of in a in a trade off position where they're having to just take what they've got right now and run with it and, and deal with it. And then when we get into the, some of the latest, you know, some of the races down the, the line, we might start to see, uh, you know, some performance parts coming in that can sort of deal with those issues.
2: Okay, great. Uh, before we leave this topic, uh, I sort of want to combine the question of is it also possibly a bit of a fuel issue for them? I know that was talked about a lot. And if it is, is there anything left for them to do about it? And my other question would be, is this just what happens when everybody has an engine that's as good as the Mercedes engine has been since 2014?
6: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is a compound problem because if you've got more drag than your initial target, then that technically means that you're going to have to save fuel. So you're going to have to do more lift and coast. And I think that's something that kind of goes under the radar at the moment because of the type of racing that we're seeing but they're all at that that they're all doing lift and coast in certain circumstances to try to save fuel because as we know you want to run the car as light as possible so you want to run with as least fuel as possible uh in order that you can make that trade off in, in lap time weight versus lap time and that's the difficulty is finding the the very small area of performance is the least trade-off and i think that's perhaps where mercedes have done well over the course of the last two races because they've still managed to get relatively decent finishes albeit pretty far off the pace
2: okay well let's let's move on then and and talk a little bit about uh ferrari and red bull they seem to have a very different solution for this particular track and it seems like Red Bull ran the slippier, more slippy solution, I guess we would say.
6: Yeah, so most of the teams had new rear wings available for them in Jeddah because it is re- realistically considered one of the lower downforce uh, arrangements uh, for, for throughout the course of the season uh, because of the high-speed nature of, of the track. But obviously you don't want to go too low because of the high-speed corners uh, and, and the trade-off that you then inevitably have there. However, as you mentioned, uh, Red Bull and Ferrari both had lower downforce wings available to them this weekend. However, Red Bull had had a new lower downforce rear wing arrive in Bahrain. So this one is a step further that they took into Jeddah. And I think Ferrari were kind of caught out in that respect because they bought what they considered a lower downforce wing. But it was still quite substantially higher downforce than than their rivals over at uh, Red Bull. So, then you end up in this situation where Ferrari mentioned the fact of tyre deg as well. They were concerned going into this particular um, track that they needed to be considerate of how much tyre degradation they would have. And so they chose not to run a really low downforce wing because they had that other consideration going on in the back of their mind. And you could say, in some respects, then, did Red Bull gamble? Because that low downforce wing wasn't on the car initially, they ran the Bahrain one and then made the switch. And it's, again, something that they did as a tactical or strategic aspect against Mercedes last year, where they'd wait a little bit to deploy a lower downforce wing to try to, you know, fox them into a a situation where you're gambling one scenario against another. And I think that's something we're going to see throughout the course of this season, is that because those two teams are so closely matched, at least at the moment, in terms of performance, that they're going to kind of have to go toe-to-toe in terms of strategy and tactics on aero as well.
2: Okay, so here's uh, one of my favourite questions, and I'm going to use this wing as an example. So did both Verstappen and Perez use this new super ultra-low downforce wing? And to make my multi-part question complete, are they running basically the same cars this season, for the first time in since whenever we've talked about Red Bull and the two different drivers,
6: yes is the answer. They both had very similar setups this weekend. Uh, obviously, there's always going to be differences between the two because of their natural driving style. They will set their cars up differently, uh, but in terms of the aero configuration that we saw on both cars, both of them ran that new lower downforce rear wing. So you know they they, they both had equal machinery uh, rather than what we've seen in the past where Verstappen tends to get uh, all the new tricks straight out of the box
2: all right uh, the last thing i want to ask about a little bit is uh, drs because i mean boy you could not avoid people saying drs is too powerful we need to rethink it and aside from the classical racing arguments about drs or you know any performance balancing aid uh, it seemed like to me that it wasn't just an automatic pass, as it frequently was um, in in seasons gone by, but why are they saying this, and do you agree with it? And if so, what kind of changes do you think we'll be looking at for future races, and how might that affect the racing?
6: Okay, so I think the biggest issue that I would take away from Jeddah in terms of DRS is that we have to remember that we've got sort of um, two zones very close to one another. so. You can kind of eke your way up to the the other driver in the first zone, back out of it, which is eventually what Max decided to do to to complete the pass, and then use the full deployment of, of DRS and obviously all, all the energy resources at his hands um, down the main straight. I do, however, think that the main straight DRS was overpowered in some respects. For me personally, I believe that DRS should allow drivers to to close the gap to the point where they can race wheel to wheel. And it just seemed that it was just slightly too powerful um, compared to what we might have seen in the past. Now, if we reverse back to when DRS was first brought into the sport in 2011, we used to have a situation where on a Friday, the a race director would monitor what was happening with DRS. And if he felt it was too powerful, he would adjust the zone accordingly. We would probably have 20 or 30 metres taken off of the zone or increased in length in order to try to balance out what they thought at the time was obviously going to give the best kind of racing. And we kind of fell out of that pattern because of cost issues and the teams saying that it was being used tactically, etc. However, I do think that Throughout the course of this season, it might be an idea to think about going back down that route if we're going to see this sort of consecutive DRS zone scenario again, uh, just to try to balance things out. But what I did like is the fact that obviously the cars could follow more closely, and then that obviously then meant that the DRS effectively becomes a little bit too powerful when compared with what was going on in the past. So I think there's a multifaceted argument to go on uh, in terms of whether DRS was too overpowered or not and I think you also have to think about the tire situation that evolved during the course of that battle as well so there's lots of things to think about
2: okay um last thing i want to talk about from a technical point of view is a, a little development that you found which is the sprung bib or splitter and i'm i'm going to just ask you straight up is that part of the answer to the porpoising problem do you think or is that just because certain teams want to run at a higher rake angle and they're just going to be banging off the floor more if they do that
6: a bit of both really if i'm honest matt and you look at which teams actually have the sprung mechanisms in the bib and it is ferrari red bull haas uh, alfa romeo and a couple of the others have variants but not to the large degree that we're seeing uh, the the others uh, that i've just mentioned have uh, so, effectively, what happens here, we've seen um, stays used in the past on the bibs to prevent the bib colliding with the track and then causing a rebound situation. However, the rules do allow them this year to have what is determined in the regulations as a device. So, you know, each of them has their own interpretation of what these um, sprung devices are. Uh, Ferrari have a damper situation. Red Bull have a Belleville spring situation and Haas have a coil spring. So they've all got different ways of dealing with what they're trying to do. But effectively what they're doing is they're allowing the bib to collide with the track but not stay in collision with it as long as, he, as you would if you have, say, a, a normal type of metal stay between the bib and the chassis. So it's a very interesting situation there that's, that's arisen. It's interesting that those particular teams that I've mentioned seem to be better on the porpoising end of the scale and seem to have the best ride and and adaptability in terms of setup. So I I do think that we will see a lot of the other teams develop down that route. I don't think it's the silver bullet, but I do think it might offer some way towards helping deal with the problems at hand.
2: Okay, because I mean, to me, right off, that suggests that you're absorbing energy that would otherwise be directly transmitted uh, into the chassis um, and into the, into the heave element. So it seems like it could potentially help interrupt the, the the feedback cycle that we see uh, when the cars have that behavior. And this leads me to sort of my, my last question is you mentioned Ferrari, but it sure seemed like Carlos signs was bouncing a lot more than our, our friend Leclerc there. It, do you have any insight as to, other than just, well, he had a different setup, uh, d- any ideas why that might be the case?
6: Well, yeah, I mean, the obvious uh, answer there is he was running a different setup because each of the drivers have their own ways to, to to deal with these situations. But on his end of the scale, he was clearly suffering more. And, you know, Ferrari will be looking at that in order that they can try and move him closer towards Uh, what Leclerc was running to get a better handle on the car because, you know, it's not a one-dimensional thing. It has uh, consequences in terms of tyre wear, tyre degradation. has consequences in terms of the drag level. It then feeds back into how the power unit operates. So, you know, it's something that they need to get a handle on, just as all of the teams do. Uh, But if Carlos couldn't deal with certain characteristics that leclerc could in the way in which he drives the car then obviously you are going to end up with this slightly diverging setup uh, and i think that's where we we find both carlos and charles during the course of that race weekend
2: oh so he might have inadvertently given ferrari some uh a new path to follow uh, in terms of solving the issue Better, i will say it does look like red bull have the best overall solution right now and on the way out the door here, I want to ask you about my favorite thing, uh, which is convergence. In years gone by, we've changed regulations and we've seen interesting asymmetrical nose results. But usually over the course of a season, there is a favored solution. So I know these are really big new regs, so we may not see it this season. But are you, I know we've had side pod updates and this, that and the other, are you starting to see that there's some solutions that the teams will want to be favouring over others yet? Or are we just going to have to wait a little bit longer for that particular piece of candy?
6: I think we will be waiting slightly longer for that piece of candy whilst they figure out which one is actually the best route to to follow. Uh, Obviously, all of the teams will be monitoring each of their designs in order to try to see if there's performance to be found adding it to their own car Uh, but it's not a a case of taking one lego brick and putting it in place of another lego brick it's something that you have to kind of work on as we've seen already with alpine they're already they've already made changes to their side pod aston martin have made changes to their side pod in order to try to improve what they already have and i think that's what we might start to see initially before we start to see sort of a major convergence to one solution when the teams really do understand how to get the best from the overall package.
2: All right. So we have Australia coming up. Um, Before I tell everyone where to find you on the internet, and they probably know anyway, because I'm sure they listen to all of this segment. Who's bringing what to Australia? I've heard Mercedes might have a floor. Anything else we should be on the lookout for?
6: Basically, just look across the entire field. I expect quite a few of the teams to have interesting bits coming into Australia, but I really do think that the the biggest portion of development we're going to see is when we return back to Europe, to be honest. You know, that's the classic place to start adding upgrades because it's when the teams have really started to digest the information that they've collected during testing. They've readdressed any issues that they've had through the course of the first few races and then obviously they can start to really pile on the performance. But yeah, as you mentioned, I do expect to see Mercedes with a new floor uh, and I do expect quite a few bits to arrive uh, at the third race of the season.
2: Excellent. Well, why don't you tell everyone where they can look to follow all these latest updates when they pop up on track?
6: Well, best place as always is to follow me on Twitter, which is SummersF1, but you can also find my work over on motorsport.com as well.
2: Lovely. Thanks for that, Summers, and cannot wait to get you back on.
3: We're very lucky to have Matthew Summerfield jump on board, a mainstream media tech guru jumping into the shed to give us all his tech knowledge. We, we feel very privileged. I hope you all paid attention. I hope you didn't nope out of the tech time. Don't be ashamed if you have to occasionally scroll back during tech time. I, I definitely do that. And uh, and it takes me a few passes, but I soak it up eventually, even if I don't remember it the following week. Thank you for tuning in to Missed Apex Podcast. We've got some great interviews coming up over the next couple of weeks, and it's going to be 8pm on Tuesday that we're going to uh, chat to Will Buxton, and then on Sunday at 8pm we're going to do our Australian Grand Prix race review. But wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Mistake Banks Podcast.
1: That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.
6: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.